Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome back to the Romaniacs Bunker, which we're sensibly stockpiling with tin food and blood plasma. As the incredible prospect of a no-deal exit from the EU becomes increasingly plausible, we're taking a leaf out of the government's book and getting prepared for this totally normal and fine scenario. I'm Dorian Linsky, host of a podcast that Tory MEP David Bannerman would, it seems, like to see prosecuted for treason, (laughs) for undermining the UK through extreme EU loyalty. And I've got a couple of our regular underminers with me. (laughs) Naomi Smith is Chief Operating Officer at Best for Britain, here in a personal capacity. And as a healthy vegan, she's perfectly happy with a diet of pulses forever. Hi, Naomi. How are you? <laughs> well, I've got slightly sore arms from putting the 10 kilo bags of dried chickpeas in the Romaniac store cupboard. But otherwise, I'm absolutely fine. Thank you. But I do also want to give a really, really quick shout out to two of our lovely listeners, Claudia and her cat Merlin. So hello from all of us to you both. Hello. What do you make of Dominic Raab and the entire Dexu squad being demoted as leads on the Brexit negotiations? Theresa May is taking charge herself and showing the iron leadership for which she's famed around the world. (laughs) It happened in the middle of the Brexit committee and you could actually see Raab get a ping on his phone and try to keep (laughs) speaking, while May's advisor, Ollie Robbins, who he hates, just grins. So what is the point of Dexu now, apart from stockpiling? Well, I mean... Look, the thought of Theresa May, who can't even negotiate Brexit within her own cabinet, being the person to negotiate Brexit with the whole of the EU is just, you know, frankly laughable. Obviously, it's really humiliating for Raab, um, but I think this is just her doing more of her keeping up appearances stuff. It's pretty desperate, um, but she's really reverting to type here. Um, so if we remember that, you know, her default style in the run-up to the snap general election was to basically castrate most of the ministries. Everything was being run out of number 10. And it was uh, Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy, who were her two close advisors that ran everything. How did um, that go, Naomi? Well, <laughs> you know, getting to that point now, obviously, it's Robbins. Um, but so many mistakes get made with that approach. And she had unforcera after unforcera. If you remember the manifesto, um, which they, you know, they, they, they sort of took in-house and they didn't consult very widely on it before they pushed it out in 2017. And it had a number of really stoppy commitments in it that tripped them up time and time again, such as the social care stuff really impacting uh, pensioners. And I think that probably ended up costing them uh, their majority at the election and before that do you remember there was that uproar with the budget when um, uh, they were going to put up national insurance contributions yeah. for uh, self-employed people and they had to do a big u-turn on that because this is what happens when you don't consult widely enough you you know someone would have picked it up if you put out a draft thing around a few key special advisors and, and senior civil servants and other departments but no bringing it all in-house means mistakes are probably going to be made so yeah i think this is a uh, squeaky bum time yeah but then Working with Dexu doesn't seem like a massive, or letting Dexu take the lead doesn't seem like a massive improvement. Dexit. Yeah. Like, 
Devlin the Deep Blue Sea. Also joining us is Alex Andreu, political commentator, actor, Hellenic correspondent, and the man with the nicest voice on Romaniacs. Hi, Alex. Welcome back. (laughs) Stop. Um... This week there's been news that uh, that Greece and Russia have fallen out. Russia's been meddling in the settlement between Greece and the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia because if it all gets settled, then the new Republic of North Macedonia, the former former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, <laughs> might join NATO. Um, can you just uh, can you explain what's happening in your homeland? Um, well, other than my homeland burning at the moment mm. in horrific awful. circumstances, the, the Russia thing is interesting and if some of the conspiracy theories are to be believed not entirely unrelated to the fires um, that rumor is circulating um, around Greece that this is a sort of punishment beating Um, Greece has had traditionally quite a close relationship with Russia primarily for religious reasons because we're both orthodox countries and so it's been very useful to have this cornerstone of NATO that also has a speaking relationship Mm. with the sort of big adversary during all the Cold War years Greece has a talent for doing that it also you know it's very strongly pro-Palestine while managing to have really good relations with Israel as well It, it sort of It does that. It acts as broker. Um, But what's happened is that um, I think Russia is basically trying to prize Turkey away from NATO. I think that's the crux of it. The crux of it is that Russia is trying to get Turkey to realign with them and have succeeded to a large extent, which would be a disaster for Greece because, you know, the only thing keeping the peace in that region is that we're both NATO members. Um, and, and you know, if anything serious erupts, then basically the United States can go, now both of you stop it. Mm. And, and we rely on that. Mm. Um, and, I, and so I think Russia increasingly acting out in the region, trying to sort of cement a base from which you can operate in the East Mediterranean and Greece, it, it, the time has come to basically bet your chips and Greece is betting on the states. That's that's what's going on in short. Fun, fun time to bet on the states, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... You said devil in the deep blue sea. Yeah. How about that one? It's, it's the no good options episode of Romania. Yes. <laughs> Meanwhile, we've got a special guest on the show this week. Jason Arthur is co-founder of FFS, For Our Future's Sake. They missed out the O for some weird reason. The Youth and Student Anti-Brexit Campaign. He's a Londoner, a teacher, an ex-Labour councillor in Haringey, and he's an Arsenal fan, which means he's used to long campaigns with multiple setbacks and the threat of an early exit from Europe. <laughs> that's, that's life. <laughs> Hi, Jason. Thanks for coming in. How are you? Yeah, I'm um, very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is my first podcast. So oh, wow. You've chosen it very well. It's just, it's just, yeah, just really like radio, but slower. <laughs> okay. um, for listeners who, who don't know what FFS is, what is it and how did you get involved? Uh, so I guess, as with all good uh, ideas, it kind of formed in a pub. Um, so me and uh, a colleague of mine at that time, Richard, we both worked for a, a youth charity and had been speaking uh, for a while about our frustrations with what was going on with Brexit, the fact that obviously promises weren't being delivered on, uh, but particularly uh, for us, the feeling that young people weren't 
being heard, that their voices weren't being included or, or focused on uh, within Brexit discussions. Um, so we had one initial chat in the pub and then Richard got some of his uh, other friends together and there was a wider chat about uh, what it would take to essentially help young people get more involved and get angrier about what was going on and, and feel as though they could influence uh, uh the end state um and so that's how ffs was and we had uh we've had femi from ofoc on the podcast um and obviously that's also a kind of youth based movement what do you um do you kind of have different specialisms or different angles on this yeah so um well i I guess not to uh happily quote chinese dictators but the idea of letting <laughs> a thousand flowers bloom i think mm. in this space um is the right one so you know our future our choice uh, and femi are doing incredible work um you know unlike us who are slightly older you know for i think two of their co-founders they literally just dropped out of university in order to get it going and i think they've done a lot of work in particular in the kind of media influencing space so they've mm. done some great social media work that you know they're getting onto your sky news or your bbc um where we thought our uh i guess skill set could add to what they're doing is on in student unions you know in universities uh where particularly amanda and richard have some really strong connections because they've got an nus background uh, and obviously the labor party is a uh, key player in this if we want to uh, see a referendum on the terms of the deal, then ultimately, you know, Labour need to be in that space. And my experience in the Labour Party, we thought, could help. Because you, you have been hugely active within Labour on pressing for a people's vote. Um, and indeed, we've got voices in Momentum uh, calling for that now as well. What's your sense of, uh, of how much traction the idea is getting inside the party? Because the message coming from uh, the leader's office is, is very much no, ch- no chance... So I think all of the polling that I've seen shows that when you speak to Labour members, it's pretty clear uh, what their views are. They want to see uh, Labour take a pretty strong line on uh, those six tests. They're pro-European and they're essentially pro-Remain. And actually, the latest poll I saw in terms of uh, support for a vote on the terms of the deal, the majority of Labour members supported that too. So there is a disconnect between them and then MPs and uh, the leader's office. I think for MPs they're in a difficult position because many of them obviously represent uh, constituencies where lots of people voted to leave. Mm. Um, the leader's office, you know, is, for me as a, a member, you know, since I was 16, I find it uh, frustrating um, because, you know, ultimately, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was elected with a lot of support from young people um, as leader of the party because... In part, he talked about democratising the party and giving members uh, a voice. Uh, and on this key issue, the most important issue our, our country is facing, it feels as though, at the moment, the views of the membership are not influencing uh, the leadership. Uh, is, is there anything... I mean, what more do you think you can do? Do you think that, that it's a question of just sort of building that momentum and building that support to the point where they just they have to acknowledge it? I think so. So obviously, young people are a big part of you know Jeremy's base, um, and I think what we want to do is you know move it beyond a kind of factional infighting. Do you yeah. like the leader or not? Because that just hangs over every single debate um, at the moment, and it's just not constructive. And actually, support young people to say, look, this is this is not necessarily about you, Jeremy. This is about us and our desire to see you represent us on this key issue. 
Yeah. You know, if we can whip enough young people up to make that case directly to the leader's office and to the local Labour MPs, then I think we've got a chance. I think that's where I suppose the you know what momentum some of these momentum members are saying is important because it it, it does kind of get you out of that sort of factional thing that the only people that want a people's vote are people that don't like the leader. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. We'll be uh, talking to Jason on various Brexit-related subjects this week. Sorry, they are all Brexit-related subjects. <laughs> as well as shortages stockpiling and the exciting new lorry park on the M26, we'll be taking another look at the looming horror of no deal. How close is it and what would trading on WTO rules actually mean? Plus, why leavers and remainers behave very differently on social media? If you thought that each side was as annoying as the other... Why would you? A recent study suggests otherwise. All that and more after a couple of announcements from Alex. We have an exciting update about the next Romaniacs Live on Wednesday 12th September at the Leicester Square Theatre in London. We have an addition to the bill for this special evening of live and uncut Brexit discussion. And it's me! (laughs) Provided that electricity is still working in central London by then, I'll be joining the rest of the team on stage at the Leicester Square Theatre to discuss whatever terrible state Brexit and the government have managed to get themselves into. Tickets are going fast at leicestersquaretheatre.com and if you support us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon, you get a discount on as many tickets as you want. And that is a very good reason to become a Patreon backer today because you'll get the discount on tickets plus those flattering Romaniacs t-shirts, sought-after Romaniacs mugs and covetable Romaniacs tote bags. Visit patreon.com forward slash Romaniacscast to find out more. And tickets for Romaniacs Live on Wednesday, 12th September, are on sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Now, it's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. It's the Brexit news. Before we get started, what do we think of Jeremy Corbyn's speech this week? highlighting the economic benefit of Brexit, the weak pound, while attacking imports made by cheap labour abroad and saying that government contracts should be kept in the UK. Now, sloppy speechwriting seems to me to blame for the confusion between workers who live abroad and foreign workers in the UK, and there seemed to be... uh, There was a misunderstanding when The Independent first reported this. So without... If you remove that aspect... Alex, what did you you make of his, his general message? Can I just make noises... Do I have to say actual words? Pay for noises. Um, look, I, he's he's trying to do a, a difficult thing, which is, I mean, internally, which is reconcile a, a sort of traditional anti-Western, anti-EU um, stance that he's held for decades and decades with seeing the actual effect of Brexit approaching. And so he's trying to marry those things up, and that's why he ends up in so many contradictions. That's what I think. And like, he seems to be making such a, an argument for investment in our ma- manufacturing base without any concept that a weak pound really, really hurts <laughs> manufacturers because most of our manufacturers have to import some form of raw material for what they do. Um, and, you know, also he totally t- failed to talk about how tariff hit will be once we're outside the EU. Yeah. But I think for him politically, the, the, the most egregious part of it all is that he just totally ignores the fact that it's the poorest people that are going to be hit the hardest, the the people he stands on a platform and claims to champion. There literally is no such thing as a, a jobs-first Brexit. And if he was truly concerned about insecure work and low pay, uh, he'd be leading the charge on keeping us in the EU. 
it didn't seem to have much connection with actually what was going on because I mean I think a lot of people would like uh, to see some some sort of manufacturing revival. I mean people have talked for a very long time about the kind of imbalance in the economy between goods and services, but actually Theresa May is is sort of prioritising goods over mm. services mm. In, yeah. in the in the Chequers plan, and it seems like. I think the reason perhaps that it was it was misunderstood and it seemed that he was sort of dog whistling a bit, which I'm prepared to concede uh, that was not his intention, is that people, it wasn't quite clear what he was saying and how he thought that Brexit was going to benefit this manufacturing revival as opposed to mm. make it much harder. Mm-hmm. I mean, what we need for a manufacturing revival is much more closely linked to uh, investment <coughs> in skills, investment particularly in very, very high-end manufacturing skills. Um, it's bringing forward government projects and, and having a much more neo-Keynesian approach to public spending than we've had under austerity for the last you know, decade at least, um, and um, you know, infrastructure spending uh, in the north. I mean, that, that, if, 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 if he was genuinely concerned about all of this stuff, he would be talking far more about all of that. And the other thing that um, we were discussing a couple of weeks ago is that it's a mistake, again, to see services as one whole that's mm. driving in the same direction. There is a portion of services, especially financial services, that would quite like to be outside the European rules, especially with really quite big noises in the last few years going on about financial transactions tax and uh, more uh, transparency about uh, you know accounts held in overseas territories etc so it's not necessarily all services that would like to stay within the EU and you just have to weigh up how much lobbying power the financial services that would quite like to be outsided have with the government. And I think then that explains it a little bit more. OK, now let's do the proper news. First up, food. Somehow we've arrived at a situation where the citizens of the world's seventh largest economy, and not rising, are actively contemplating food shortages and hoarding in case there's a no-deal Brexit in March and we fall back on WTO rules. Cheese, butter and yoghurt may become expensive luxuries, as my infant breast formula, the very very definition of a luxury. The chief executive of Amazon warned of civil unrest. If supply chains break down in the weeks after a hard Brexit, I know I get very cross if Prime doesn't deliver the next day. <laughs> the government itself has warned that the M26 in Kent would have to be used as a lorry park holding area if up to 10,000 trucks a day were delayed by new EU customs checks. There has been talk of suspending customs checks on foodstuffs if we leave without a deal, just like being in the customs union. And it's all down to political deadlock in Westminster, where somehow the convention has become that if a compromise can't be reached, the solution is to give the ERG everything it asks for. Um, Naomi Lax, have you started hoarding what Dominic Raab calls adequate food supplies yet? Well, I'm a really massive fan (laughs) of um, dystopia and uh, (coughs) post-apocalyptic horror books and films, um, which is probably why I work on Brexit. Um, So I'd be lying if I didn't say that a little bit of me was, uh, you know, almost excited. Um, I've watched 28 Days Later at least 100 times, so, you know, (laughs) I've got this, guys. Um, But seriously, it's not so much um, the food that's necessarily concerning me as medical supplies that we import, um, so cancer treatments, insulin, but really critically, um, there's been quite a bit of talk about blood uh, and and human tissue that we import. And as I understand it, the UK still isn't allowed to produce IV immunoglobulin, if I've pronounced that correctly, uh, and other blood projects due to CJD. Um, And so we have to source it from abroad. 
And then, you know, actually I did train as an accountant and I'm a bit of a recovering accountant these days, uh, but occasionally I have to remember it. And stockpiling for business is is really very, very expensive. This is about tying up your working capital. Um, We're going to be seeing the Treasury writing to businesses over the next week telling them to start, you know, getting prepared for a no deal um, and if you are like what paper clips or <laughs> 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 well you know all sorts of things that they need but um, so many modern businesses now operate just in time stock management because lean is efficient and it allows you to compete globally uh, and and if you're tying up your cash in working capital and you're having to hold lots and lots and lots of stock it makes you uncompetitive almost instantly mm. um, so yeah I, I I'm sort of very, very concerned about and, and on the it, one, not just food. On the one hand, this feels like a... I mean, it's a good scare tactic. Um, I say good. A useful scare tactic, based, you know, both aimed in one direction at the EU to say, you know, we're prepared to walk. And on the other side, the ERG going, this is what the kind of no deal that you seem enthusiastic will actually mean. So it's kind of... It, there seems to be like a psychological warfare dimension making people... Uh, you know, making the public worried. Last week's guest, David Allen Green, maintains that no deal won't happen. He said that on Twitter this week. So, I mean, how concerned sh- should we be? How, how sort of serious is this and how much is it a, uh, a a bit of a ploy to kind of talk up the dangers? Um, I think no deal can happen. And I think it can happen accidentally. Um, because you set this really (coughs) complex machine full of cogs in motion, and if you don't get your shit together by a particular date, Mm. then you can basically find yourself with no deal. Um, I was listening to an aviation expert the other day who was saying that, you know, it's not the evil EU that will ground all our flights. It will be literally the fact that we have no domestic agency to assess the safety Mm. of air travel Mm. and therefore the insurance companies Mm. will refuse to insure flights in and out of the UK Mm. and therefore the airlines will refuse to fly. Mm. Mm. So it's a it's a sort of uh, you know a massive it's a massive cascade of unintended consequences is what it is. If we get to a particular date things are triggered without us having to do anything. Mm. Well, one worrying sign, I think, is that Brexiters are busy preparing to blame the EU for no deal rather than uh, what you might think they want to do, is insisting that it, it won't happen. And new Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt, uh, formerly a Remainer, not sure what he is now, <laughs> says if there's no deal, it will damage British people's view of the EU for generations. But it seems to be British people's view of the EU at the moment <laughs> is not great, which is perhaps why we're in this situation. But already there's this kind of uh, this idea that if it, if it sort of falls apart, it's it's all the part of the it's all the fault of the the baddies in the EU. Yeah, I mean we've seen we've seen quite a bit of this already. I mean particularly with the people that um, worked on Vote Leave, uh, Dominic Cummings in particular, they're already beginning to rewrite history. They're already beginning to write their own version of yeah. their own role in this madness and this chaos. So this constant othering and pitching all problems as it, it's the others, they're the ones that have, have made this happen. You know, absolutely um, avoiding taking any responsibility uh, or ownership for the state that we're in themselves. So, you know, uh, it doesn't surprise me that they're doing it. Well, did but- you see that amazing uh, spectator uh, headline which was saying, why does the UK care so much more about Ireland than the UK? Yeah. And it was like, just, yeah. just think about it <laughs> think for about a little it. while. Exactly. Get back to me when you've worked it out. <laughs> 
sorry, I was I was listening to a um, radio documentary about um, Thatcher and the sort of beginnings, the seedlings of Brexit in many ways. Um, and w- what I found really interesting is that that was the point where our relationship with Europe changed fundamentally um, with us looking at the other nations in the uh, European community, as it was then, as adversaries to be bested rather than partners with whom we mm. could work. And that has never really mm. gone away. And it's not going to go away now when they are actual adversaries, because we also have to accept that. You know, we have to accept that by putting ourselves outside of the EU, we are no longer their concern. Our interest is no longer their concern, their concern yeah. insofar as it doesn't impact on them. Obviously, they yeah. want a healthy, yeah. um, uh, you know, they want a healthy UK next to them. They want a trading partner. They want to do all of that. But that doesn't mean that they're going to sacrifice their own interest. Well, it's like kind of dumping your partner and then getting cross when they won't help you do all the yeah. the moving out. Moving <laughs> out. <laughs> still unreasonable. Just so. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Brexit is also making upbeat references to how we survived the Millennium Bug and the Blitz. Mm. Although thousands of people did actually die in the Blitz. <sighs> And we didn't actually vote for aerial bombardment, nor did we describe the Luftwaffe as a great opportunity for Britain. So the analogy seems a little weak, but it does seem to play to this idea that the the, the British have, Mm. uh, you know, the home of the keep calm and carry on poster, Mm. the sort of everything will be fine, even though, like I said, if you actually look at death tolls and stuff, not fine. No. Now, do you think, uh, and there's, there's this sort of like, slightly mulish refusal to panic that I think uh, Mm. the the English often have. But is that to sort of curdle into a total refusal to consider the consequences, that literally everything becomes project fear, that there's just a kind of like stubborn complacency that nothing bad will happen, even though, in the case of the Millennium Bug, Mm. The bad stuff didn't happen because lots of measures were taken to make sure that it didn't. Exactly. I mean, I think there is a lot of that around. Mm. I don't necessarily think it's as widespread as we might think, but it does exist and is confined to a very particularly UKIP-y older voter. You know, they're now not just content with their blue passports. They want their ration books back now too. Um, (laughs) So they're all quite happy about uh, uh, all of this, you know, dig for victory nonsense. But... Let's face it, you know, they're the same people that wang on about Blitz Spirit are usually the same people that moan instantly that there's a hosepipe ban and write an angry letter to their local yeah. newspaper about it. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's it's all bluster until it happens and then they'll be the first people moaning because they're just chronic moaners. They're just the, the people who are negative about everything. But if you go time. back to, I've been reading about um, Austerity Britain the first time round after the, after the war and... People really were moaning quite a lot. Mm. It wasn't as if everyone was just no. like, okay, let's all pull together. You know, yeah. lots of people right. really hated the yep. sacrifices they and, had to And make. rationing went on well into the 50s, didn't it? I mean, late 50s, but, I think. But the key ingredient, I think, was that there was a general respect for authority, which I think... Now doesn't it, exist. It, it doesn't exist. No. It's been eroded. So mm. 
whatever it was that triggered that resilience and that solidarity that mm. got us through that period, mm. I don't think it exists anymore. People call their local police station when KFC runs out of chicken. <laughs> you know, th there, were, there was a shortage of salad leaves and people were punching each other yeah. in Tesco within a week. I mean, don't get me started on the hummus scare. So, yes. Um, well, there was a good quote times. from David Aronovich quoting uh, the American theatre critic John Lark. Um, who described the British as a nation of hysterics masquerading as Stoics. And so I do, I do think that there is, there is a, a slight problem with the keep calm and carry on myth. It's just that, that you know, that sort of, yeah. we can take anything. Yes. I, I don't think that's, that's actually borne out. And if it, was, I mean, if it was, you would not take seriously the head of Amazon UK warning of kind of... I mean, I still think it seems slightly hyperbolic. But can I just, just say like, that... Why are you rioting? And it's just like, I ordered printer ink, I needed it the next day, it wasn't there, and now I'm just like ram-raiding Ryman's. But, I mean, on a slightly more serious note, a lot of the MPs are, uh, particularly in my line of work, telling us things like, oh, we're, we're very worried about not seeing Brexit through because we'll end up with riots on the streets. But you know what is a surefire way to end up with riots on the streets, and that's when food and fuel and medicine gets rationed. I don't think it even takes that. I'll, I'll tell you a, a very, very short story. About six months ago, our entire block, Wi-Fi, stopped. Some Someone was doing roadworks or something and they'd cut the lines. Was it and like J.G. Ballard's high-rise by the end of the week? Nobody had Wi-Fi. And this was only for about 12 hours, OK? And people were outside in their front gardens looking lost, asking other people, you as well, huh? <laughs> so, you know, and you couldn't, you couldn't, like, do your payments online. I mean, it was mayhem. Can you imagine if we had Wi-Fi in the 40s? And the Luftwaffe had knocked out Wi-Fi. I think yeah. I think the Blitz spirit would 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 have would surrendered. Would have been dead. They'd have just gone. Look, do what you want. Just but give us back. Give us back. Well, it could be Nazi Wi-Fi, but just give it back. <laughs> Nazi Wi-Fi would, I imagine, be very efficient. <laughs> All this brings us to No Deal itself. Parliament broke up this week for a five-week summer recess because that's what you do when you've engineered the biggest political crisis since the Second World War. You go walking in the Lake District and run through fields of golden wheat. A really rain-starved wheat. <laughs> and in the manner of a season finale, they left us with a massive cliffhanger. Will the nightmare No Deal scenario actually happen? It once seemed an absurdly remote possibility, a bogeyman to frighten the EU and Tory Remainers. But EU officials are now putting the odds at 50-50. There's no majority in the Commons for any deal, least of all the Chequers one. And in any case, we haven't even heard the EU's response to the government's proposals. Faced with an expected drop in GDP of 7% by 2030, the Brexiters are now trying to rebrand No Deal as the World Trade Organization option. Mogg is saying, we're heading for WTO and WTO is nothing to be scared of, like some sort of libertarian adamant. But it is something to be scared of. <laughs> Uh, Naomi, very few people understand what the WTO rules actually are, which I think is can be a bit of a polling problem because mm -hmm. a lot of people, yeah. uh, they go, well, yes, no deal, because yeah. they don't exactly know all the ramifications. Um, how did it, and we'll, we'll talk about what some of the consequences will be later, yeah. but how did this become the, the ERG's sort of goal as opposed to a kind of like, you know, a sort of terrible fallback option? They, they seem to actively want it. So I think... 
Jacob Rees-Mogg, King Toff of the ERG, um, who runs you know investment funds all over the world and, and anywhere but the UK at the moment, it seems, setting up more in Ireland and things. Um, I, I suspect he is you know this real market fundamentalist that absolutely you know does believe in all of that. I I honestly think that the rest of them just haven't thought about it enough. I don't think they know. I honestly, honestly think that you know they're just behaving like sheep, um, and that and and that they just you know don't have any any kind of uh, recognition of, of exactly what this means. Um, I think a lot of people when they hear oh defaulting to WTO rules and they hear that phrase, it sounds like there's this kind of basic entry level framework for international trade, which is just you know <laughs> sitting there ready and waiting for the UK to somehow you know fall back into. And within that myth, because it is a total myth, there lies another one, which is that it's companies that do trade and not governments. Um, and the international, uh, you know, trade rules and agreements are nice to have, but but kind of a bit redundant. But apart from smuggling, literally no international trade takes place outside some kind of legal framework and and, and rules based um, framework that transcend the nation states. So Brexiteers that are complaining about difficulties of the UK, you know, kind of getting its own way within twenty seven other EU countries, are in for a pretty nasty shock. I think when all of a sudden we're going to be dealing with one hundred and sixty plus WTO members, um, all with their own different interests about what trade quotas the UK may or may not be offered um, and granted, uh, particularly on goods, once we've um, left the EU, because there isn't this ready framework for us to drop into. Those rules aren't there. Mm. You have to untangle the UK's portion of the EU... Uh, and that is something that has to be negotiated and, and people that compete with us on certain goods will sort of say, well, no, 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 their share is nowhere near that big. It's much, much smaller to, to, give, us, to give us the quota of the trade that we're allowed to do under those terms. Um, so I suspect and I do not have anywhere near the level of understanding about all of this than uh, Ian does. And we need to ask him all about it when he comes back on the show. But I suspect I've probably got a bit of a better handle on it than most of the ERG. Jason, do you wish you'd chosen a cause that did not involve you having to spend loads and loads of time trying to understand the <laughs> complex international <laughs> trade deals. Like oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're obviously, you know, you're, you're sort of very thoughtful. You're immersed in this. Um, I mean, do you think there is a problem that, that the average person, and I, I, I'm talking about the, what I would be like if I wasn't appearing on this podcast mm. even, um, just cannot quite be expected to understand what a WTO option would mean. I mean, are we trying to explain, are we trying to talk to people about something that really is too complicated for them to fully grasp? Well, no, I don't think we should um, patronise people. I think we should be honest about... I'm patronising myself. Yeah. 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 Asking for a friend. (laughs) 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 Um, I think uh, definitely people... um, should be encouraged to engage with it and you know our job as Romaniacs is to try and uh, share what we think the damaging impact of a no deal would be but there's also you know we've got to reflect on what happened in 2016 where there was a lot of you know scare stories you know it's going Mm. to be disastrous you know so thus vote to remain and lots of people didn't engage with that either because they're not happy with their lives at the moment and are prepared Mm. to take the risk or because they didn't trust uh, the people who were giving those messages so we've got to think about how do we in a real way not necessarily talk about WTO rules but say actually your ability to travel abroad will be affected in this way or your ability to access food will Mm. be impacted on that way I think that and 
trying to deal with the credibility issues of uh, of the past and now, I yeah. think, are key. But, but isn't it simply extraordinary how we've gone in two years from land of milk and honey mm. awaits us mm. to simply discussing the quantum of damage? Yes. Yeah. To simply... Yeah trying to assess how bad it's going to be and whether we can take it and whether it will be worse than the blitz or not. Well, that was Mm. Rob's word when it said Mm. adequate food. Not Mm. maintain food supplies, but literally not starve people. (laughs) I haven't eaten since 1976 anyway, so I don't care. (laughs) This will be good for my figure. One of the other things that I'm slightly concerned about with um, No Deal, and I think it's something that the pollsters are having to sort of dig into, is that um, what we're not quite sure is when not, not only do people understand not understand the consequences of what that means, they don't even necessarily understand the question when they're being asked because it, to some people I think it might be being interpreted as deal or no deal and stay in with what we've got you know so i think there is also that danger as well that the no the the no deal supporters are being overrepresented it's that it's that thing when you're trying to buy you know buy a house and somebody won't come down in the price and they almost think that no deal is just like i'll go back to my house but then actually when you go back to your house you find that like there are bits missing and people are smashing it up (laughs) and you're actually just trying to hold it together you know and i yeah i really think that i don't know how the pollsters are kind of are finding their way around that because I saw the support for No Deal seem to me startlingly yes, high. and I think it might be masking some of some of what I just well, mentioned. Well, but yeah. there's not... I don't think there's a real understanding of what No Deal means no. anyway. Um, but also, I mean, I have a, I have a bit of a dilemma because I could go back to Greece, you see, for when it all happens and have all the milk and butter and yoghurt I can eat. <laughs> and can, Greek honey. Can you take me with But, you? but <laughs> then... I might not be able to get Um, back in mm. because, for instance, what's not being discussed at all is that no deal also means that, you know, the uh, provisions that they've put in place for UK citizens living in the EU27 and EU citizens living in the UK, they won't um, apply. Um, And people are saying, oh, we won't pay the divorce pill or whatever. And they don't also think about the reputational effect because we're in a period where we're being told we're going to go out there and do all these great deals with all these nations that are dying to deal with us. But what we will have just done is screwed our partners of 40 years on outstanding liabilities. Mm. We will basically have just gone, Mm. screw you, we're not paying a dime. And then we'll be going to the same nations going... Could you do a deal with us? At the same time as America seems to be developing an appetite for trade wars. Yes. So the idea that that all of these... There's obviously been the initial shock when we come out because we won't have any of the deals set up. But the prospect of actually negotiating those deals, even over the long term, seems to be dubious. Unless you're talking about the MOG version of long term, which, as he said in an interview this week, 50, was 50 years, which is, mm. is, is longer than we've been... Alive. In. Al- alive. Yes, but also longer than we've been in the European Community Stroke Union. So it's just like, I don't know, if somebody promised me that something would be fine in 50 years, particularly if I was one of the pensioners who voted leave, I would think they were taking the piss. 
But but it's only a flash in the lifetime of Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's actually an antediluvian and has been alive for over ten thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> He's like the kind of like the sort of the tough Doctor Who, <laughs> and he just keeps sort of reincarnating. And you know, there'll be old pictures of him there in like kind of Victorian photographs. There was a clip of an interview with his dad the other day on radio. It's identical. You could not tell the difference. Is his dad still alive? No, no. I mean, oh, sorry. an old clip. Oh, OK. A, an old clip yeah. of, of an interview with his dad on European stuff. And it was just extraordinary. Doctor Who identical. Dorian Gray. There's probably like an <laughs> <laughs> yeah. image of him in his mansion. That's getting prettier <laughs> in the attic. Um, so funny, did this parliamentary break of five weeks... Um, Obviously, we've got all the time in the world. Um, I mean, is, the, is, is that something to worry about? Is that something that they, that they should have, uh, that they, they could have played better? I mean, it just seems like, uh, is that just a thing that, that, that just has to happen and we have to go off? I think it might be a good thing, to mm-hmm. be honest, yeah. Because I think, actually, this constant scrutiny of it stage by stage is difficult, both for the EU and for the UK. And actually, just taking a bit of a fucking holiday and letting the civil servants get together and trying to cobble together the legal text that will form the um, the basis of the agreement without everyone microanalyzing every word and trying to uh, uh, take advantage of it for political yeah. capital i think that might help the process actually well, i think they should go i think they should go on holiday for the next 6 months well i was thinking that that a lot of people uh, on political twitter should probably take two weeks off um, <laughs> including myself and just get some perspective so um, on which subject it turns out that Leavers and Remainers behave quite differently on social media according to a recent study from researchers at the University of Copenhagen and Lund University where they study cable knit jumpers and high concept murderers the researchers tracked nearly 34 million comments from 7 million unique users on Facebook accounts belonging to newspapers like The Guardian and Telegraph and campaigns like Stronger In and Leave.eu. They found that Leavers were far more likely to post on the other side than Remainers. The research found that Brexiters left 80% of comments to the Stronger In page, but not the other way around. Remainers talk mostly to one another, but Brexiters like to turn up on Remain pages for everything from an honest debate... <laughs> <laughs> pause for laughter... to straight-up shitposting. The report comes from... Our friend Ros Taylor's excellent LSE Brexit blogs, and we'll post it on the Romaniacs Facebook page so Leavers can say it's a load of treacherous <laughs> rubbish. But it has the idea that Brexit is psychological rather than political, and as a license to throw your weight around and finally tell the smart guys what's what. Um, Alex, we probably all spend too much time on social media. Do Leavers enjoy winding us up more than we enjoy winding them up? Yes, I think so. And that's because they have. Uh, uh they have no standards to adhere to, I'm sorry to say. So uh, we're in a lose-lose situation mm. because, you know, if you, if you turn around and try to have a civilised debate, then they, they've sucked your energy in an hour of your time when really you're not mm. doing anything, you're just banging your head against the wall. And if you turn around and say, go fuck a cactus, mm-hmm. they won again because you're betraying your civilised principles of debate yeah, what, what's and, that phrase and, about and reason. don't roll around in the mud with a pig because you'll yeah, yeah, get yeah. dirty but the yeah. people enjoy or, it yeah. or the the chess with a pigeon yeah. is a terrific analogy you know don't play chess with a pigeon 
They they will just knock over a few piece, pieces, sit on the board, and then coo as if they've won. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, what, how does this reflect your experience on on social media? So this week I had uh, an article in Labour List where I was arguing essentially that Labour politicians should be more brave and mm. listen to younger voters. And it was interesting reading the comments. So overall, the, the response has been pretty positive, had lots of nice mm. emails and uh, text messages. But when you read the posts underneath, mm. <laughs> it's pretty uh, vicious. And, uh, you know, given that the majority of Labour supporters seem to be in a pro EU space, the fact that the majority of the comments underneath are very much we should be leaving and you know this is all part of a Blairite coup and then suddenly anti-Semitism is being raised, you know it feels as though the, the conversation is being dominated by people who essentially want to troll you. Well, a few years ago, I didn't realise this was a strategy. Like, I didn't think... I used to be confused writing for The Guardian, and i just go, boy, oh, boy, there seem to be a lot of people that don't even like yes. The Guardian on here. They've come to the wrong side. Like, the first 50 comments yeah. every time it's would like you, be like... It's like, what? you seem to hate the left. And then when I wrote something on Putin, this was about five, six years ago, it was just like a, quite a light sort of end-of-year piece making fun of him. And there were, like, loads and loads of people very pro-Putin. And I was like, I didn't think that was what Guardian readers were no. like. You know, now, <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. we know yeah. that this is kind of a strategy. Yeah, yeah. I, d- I, think, I think it's really useful for um, research as a reminder for Remainers not to be complacent um, and that each and every one of us has to become an advocate for the cause. And, you know, this. I, I think where it's slightly tricky for me, you know, reading this is that we know that the strongest correlator on whether you voted remain or leave was education so there is a sort of a slight i don't want to i don't want us to get caught up in a bit of a yeah. kind of you know intellectual war between you know people who know what they're talking about and people who are sort of reacting more instinctively Um, but (laughs) I love that that's so diplomatic (laughs) people who react more instinctively but I think uh, yeah we we, we can't afford to just talk within our own bubbles because it's safe and we you know we're going to have to be braver and, and take our battle to them a little bit more there is one nuance uh Dorian which is uh part of what we're trying to do uh, at FFS is do a bit of the echo chamber stuff because when you look at uh, young people I think Britain Thinks did um, a bit of research and the majority of young people are what they uh, describe as devastated pessimists so they are you know devastated at the result but they think it's basically inevitable I- yeah. isn't that basically um, emo it's no. <laughs> <laughs> a my chemical romance. Well played. You know, also you have to marshal your resources because, you know, every hour you spend debating with someone who you won't convince, you don't mm. spend debating with someone who you might. You just have to know when someone's yes, being when someone's being to. honest, not the yeah. language they yeah. use. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah, just yeah. like you shut it down but but name there's one thing I, th- I think that we I've wanted to talk about for, for a little bit that for the past few weeks there's been a lot of attacks on the noisier FBPE people mm-hmm. follow back pro-Europe many of whom no doubt are Romaniacs listeners claiming that they're just kind of milit- militant Bregsters in reverse um, Owen Jones actually told me on Twitter that as a leading fbpe not a word I've ever used or indeed a hashtag I've ever used um, I should be telling them on here how to behave uh, which is not something that I think would go down well or that I'd ever want to do. But are there kinds of Romania, Romania behaviour online that strike you as less helpful than others? Are, are there ways in which perhaps it could be more productive? Yes, of course. And you know, every cause attracts 
yeah, we're all broad coalitions and, and attract people with varying degrees of social etiquette and behavioural standards and things like that. So, yes, but, I mean, the sheer volume of vitriol from the other side versus any kind of similarly yeah. degrading stuff from our side, it just doesn't really compare. So I don't I don't worry about it too much. Um, you know, it is unhelpful you know, when somebody who's particularly, uh, you know, influential in the movement does something unsavoury and you know I think uh, a few I won't name any names but you know there have been times when yeah. a certain <clears throat> member of the House of Lords might who might have once come on our podcast says something very hyperbolic and you know a few Remainers curl their toes and think oh delete that tweet that's not you know that's not helpful but on the whole it's just the volume from the other side means that even if we do behave a bit badly it doesn't because Jason there's one that, that particularly worries me I think is that when Jeremy Corbyn uh, tweets about like an earthquake or something and then there'll be a fair number of replies going what about brexit that'll be a, an economic earthquake mm. or whatever and, <laughs> and so there's there's there seems mm. to be a kind yeah. of a huge personalization um of dislike of jeremy corbyn over this issue mm. and which is not you know i can understand it but it does seem to I've, i have noticed that because of this backlash now nobody talks about fbp people as like a group until about six weeks ago um you know in a hostile way and therefore painting them as you know anti-corbinites and evil centrists and so on for the work that you're trying to do i mean is that is that a real problem the idea that that remain being associated with anti-corbinism yeah i definitely think so so you say six weeks ago so i was at the uh massive People's Vote March, as I imagine we all were, and that chant of "Where's Jeremy Corbyn?" I think really struck a hit a nerve with um, a lot of his supporters because you know ultimately they would argue it's not him who's causing Brexit; it's the Tories. It's and the it wasn't a refugee camp, so it, it, it kind well, of looked yeah. quite bad. <laughs> exactly. But, but exactly. also struck a nerve because there was there was an element of truth. Yeah, and no, I think that's you know, true. It, it, but it, then Vince Cable, if it were if you, if you mere at, uh, sort of taunting, then it wouldn't. It needs an element where it strikes you in a place that's a little bit soft no, I think, for it to be taken. I think that's right. But on yeah. the flip side, if you look at Vince Cable missing uh, <laughs> the vote the other week, uh, a critical vote, has there been that same level of backlash against mm. him? Arguably not. No. So I, I just no. I think it's something that the Remain side need to be aware of, not to in any way make it feel yeah. overly personal because then, you know, you upset the leader's office who are very paranoid that everything is about uh, and, dragging him down. And not to want to, um, you know, do any divine conquer between FFS and, and OFUC because I know you were involved in it too, but the unfurling of the banner at Labour Live of, uh, um, what did it say? It said uh, uh, Stop backing stop Brexit. Stop backing Brexit. If that had been framed as be our hero, help us stop Brexit, I think that would have maybe had a little bit more traction with Corbynite supporters. That's interesting. And I think, you know, I, I get the anger. Trust me, we get the anger uh, with, with Jeremy Corbyn. But I, I do think that if, if, you're, if you're campaigning to win, you've got to think about what's the most successful route well, to that. And if he responded to anger, the anti-Semitism he, he, he issue wouldn't, wouldn't be, be a there, thing. Exactly. And that's, yeah, I think that's yeah, the yeah, thing. Yeah, it's yeah. just so like whether your anger is justified. Might be a better way. Of well, just on that, because you know, we worked with, you know, we we essentially coordinated the banner and then um, worked with um, our future choice mm. on the day. Um, 
if you spoke to any of the people involved in unfurling it, either prior to or after yeah. that, they were basically to a person have said, this isn't about Jeremy, this is just making him aware of how strongly we feel yeah. about it. And yet, all of the discussion afterwards got framed as a, this is an attack on the exactly, leader. Exactly, which and, is you know, why I wonder if, if the language had been more like you know, be our hero, help us stop Brexit, it, it may have gone down yeah. differently. It may not, it may not. Yeah, and that, that is definitely something that, for example, on social media, we try to do. Any time we post something or any of our supporters uh, post something through our channels, we try and make it about the issue yeah. and being supportive of Jeremy yeah. And, yeah. And, and, yeah. and being in the right space rather than yeah. attacking him. But, but one of the issues is that, you know, where, when you're in a 48 and there's a 52 and the government has decided to, to plough the furrow of the 52 completely to the max, then you expect the opposition to represent you, the 48, a little bit. And so there is, you know, I feel angry because I don't, I don't feel like there is an opposition. Well, the, the very final thing I'll say on that is, so I had a look just before coming at um, Jeremy's... Uh, social media's Twitter account, and he hasn't tweeted about Brexit since July the 10th, during a period in which you've had basically chaos. Mm. Yeah. Uh, in and that's the type of stuff that I think does frustrate people. Yeah. You've heard it throughout the show, Jason Arthur is in charge of strategy at FFS, for our future's sake, the youth anti-Brexit campaign. Um, so who came up with FFS? Was this another pub yes. idea? Yes, yeah, so this was, um, <laughs> this was uh, Richard Brooks, one of the co-founders. And I have to admit, I was sceptical about it, in part because I thought actually everyone would just add the O in, but no one has. My yeah. favourite thing is on Twitter when people say, oh, FFS, do you know that that's your initials? That, you, do you know what that stands for? And you have to go like, yes, it was intentional. <laughs> Obviously, it's a tribute to the album that Franz Ferdinand made with Spark. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just explaining the yeah, reference Yeah, no, there. of course, yeah. I should have said that. <laughs> um, so what, what were you doing on, on referendum night or referendum morning? Like, where, what's your memory? Um, so I, at that point, so I was a, a counsellor in Haringey and then uh, part-time I taught in a secondary school. Uh, so the whole day um, I've been canvassing both in the west and the east of Haringey, finished at 10 o'clock, exhausted, Went to bed thinking it'll be tight, but we'll probably be okay. Um, but decided to wake up, uh, obviously, to see uh, mm. you know, what was going on. And then, obviously, the world was crashing. Um, and then I had to go and explain that to my kids. So I, I did the assembly the following morning oh, uh, to oh. year 9 to 11, basically, you know, what's going on. So I had to try and, as objectively as I could, explain what had happened whilst you've got teachers sitting in the chairs just, like, devastated at the result, looking genuinely tearful and, you know, students just confused. So, yeah, it was tough. Because one of my, my sort of strongest memories of the next day was seeing uh, Matty Healy from the 1975. I was at Glastonbury, and he, and he very much put it in generational terms. And he was saying, I don't want to talk about politics, but it feels as if the old generation have kind of stolen our future, which was, you know, and this was mm. like literally that day. That seemed to be something, that was the first thing he thought of. And I think a lot of politics is decided by generations' formative political experiences, whether that's the 60s or, you know, the late 70s or austerity. How do you think, I mean, it's, it's always hard to predict the future. If we could predict the future, we'd, we wouldn't be in this situation. But mm. um, 
what do you think long-term kind of impact is going to make on on kind of younger people, the sort of the sort of Brexit generation as a kind of political awakening or a political disappointment? Like you said, what was your what was the phrase you had? Oh, devastated pessimism. Devastated pessimism. Yeah. Like what? What do you think the kind of impact is going to be as a kind of almost like a, a generational experience of politics? Well, I, I think the first thing to say is if you look. Uh, Prior to 2016, uh, so austerity starting you know, in 2010, many of uh, the government re- reforms over those six years hit young people the hardest. Whether it's you know EMA or mm. um, yeah. uh, tuition mm. fees, there, you know, there was a feeling that um, young people were getting you know hard done by, and then obviously the result comes in, and it's clear that it's older voters who have made it happen. Look, I don't think at the moment there is evidence of uh, an uprising yet. That's part of, I guess, the job of FFS and Our Future, Our Choice is to help generate that. And I think it's beginning to bubble up. And when we're on campuses, people are frustrated. They clearly know that things are going mm. you know, terribly. So I think it could be very formative. But it, as you say, it's, it's hard to know. And what sort of things are your, your members and followers saying in terms of... Um, I mean, I suppose that mixture of things which are very practical and personal to them, like perhaps where they where they would like to travel and work, mm. and the sort of the larger sense of kind of where the country is going or where politics is going, the conversations you have, is there a kind of like a balance between this kind of the micro and the macro in terms of why people are concerned? I think so. So there's a kind of a, a values issue and then there's the opportunities issue. So obviously young people are worried about their opportunities in terms of going and traveling where they want to, living where they want to, working where they want to in 27 other countries. And that's a real challenge. Uh, A feeling that you have uh, a generation or two post-war who managed to get all of the good housing and secure jobs and suddenly that level of security, you know, millennials down Generation Z don't have. But there's also something about... um, you know, what type of country we're becoming. So whether it's the rise in hate crime or, you know, silly things like if you were, uh, if you voted leave, you're more likely to support bringing back the cane. Those types of, you know, very small token value issues. I think there's a genuine concern that, you know, we're kind of retrenching back to uh, a Britain that probably never existed, but is in the minds of some of, you know, slightly whiter, um, more straight um, you know, a time when you know, Britain yeah. was great, and yeah, yeah. and and that I think needs to be challenged because I think a lot of young people, despite the insecurity they feel, still feel open to the world. They want to be able to, you know, embrace all of the opportunities that the European Union and the world more broadly have to offer, uh, and it feels like that's being taken away from. Them. And we talked a little bit earlier about the, you know, the fact that you're a Labour Party member, in fact, a, a former councillor. Um, why do you think that there is uh, the, the Labour left generally is sort of keen to, if not endorse Brexit, uh, because actually I think if you look at the MPs who are who are voting with the government on Brexit, it's not the sort of the left of the party. Mm. But, but to sort of minimise the issue, do you think that it is just out of loyalty to Corbyn? Like we said, you've got the, the two issues have become kind of related. So to, to be too noisy on Brexit is to be seen to be criticising Corbyn. Or do you feel from people you've spoken to, people you know, that there is a kind of a serious sort of appetite for for Lexit? Are there many sort of true Brexit believers in Labour? Yeah, I mean, there is definitely a strong strain of 
uh, Lexiteers, um, and you saw an element of that, I think, this week in uh, Corbyn's speech, uh, where he essentially talked about some of the potential benefits of leaving the EU in terms of the you know, pound going down and us being able to export. Um, certainly, it feels like you know, people within the leader's office, you kind of Seamus Milne types, are pretty comfortable with the idea of us um, leaving the EU. But, you know, ultimately, I think some of the voices that have led the uh, pro-Remain or pro-people's uh, vote argument, though I agree with them in many ways, are people who are seen as on one side of the party, whether it's mm. Chucker, whether it's Chris Leslie, you know, they're the ones who are viewed as antagonistic towards Jeremy. And so when people see them making the argument, then there's a feeling that, oh, you know, actually, is it more about them trying to undermine the leader than well, yeah, what they're saying, which is frustrating, but, you know. Is, is there a sense that they're in his bad books anyway? They're out of the front bench, so they're the people that can make the noises. Yeah, I mean, so I think they're making the noises because they're making a principled stand as what they believe in rather than viewing it as a way to undermine Jeremy and they're not in the front bench so you know, hmm. they have the freedom to do that but I, where I think young people are, are crucial is in us making that argument and uh, you know, young people from across the political spectrum across the spectrum of the Labour Party making that argument it stops then being about the factional infighting it becomes young people standing up for their futures and asking the Labour leadership to do the same Do you meet many uh, young Brexiters sort of under 30s I really don't, but the, right. you know, I, I am uh, a young guy from North London. <laughs> so that probably uh, my circle is an echo chamber in itself. But you know, it's a, it's a minority opinion, I think, um, for young people. It's definitely there and has to be engaged yeah. with. But the majority of young people are, are pro Remain, not necessarily pro EU, but you know, yeah. pro Remaining. And the question, obviously, with the people's... I mean, there's a lot of questions around the people's vote, obviously, the, the mechanisms and, and so forth. But ultimately, the point that you're trying to get to is winning that and convincing people. Mm -hmm. um, and we talked a bit earlier about, you know, social media behaviour and how there are clearly people that, that are never, ever going to be convinced. How do you um, identify the people that it's important to spend time trying to listen to and persuade and give a very positive image of what the future in the EU could be versus the people where you just know from the start, look, this is just, they're never going to change. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. And the only way that you work that out really is through talking to people. I mean, there are polls that show that, you know, despite the fact that Twitter and Facebook feel like they dominate everything, actually the majority of voters either aren't on those platforms or when they are, they're looking for videos of cats. So it's going to be conversations with people. And we would say to young people, talk to your parents, talk to your grandparents, many of whom are soft leavers, they thought it was the right thing to do, but actually when they start talking to their kids or grandkids who are saying that they're worried about uh, their future, that might ring alarm bells mm. if we can get more young people feeling confident and activated to have those conversations then you might start to support a shift in the so, so what are you saying do we need more pro-EU cat memes <laughs> yeah. is, that, is that the answer <laughs> that would definitely help but I also think having more like if if on uh, Andrew Marr or on Ridge or wherever it is you've got the same old uh, faces um, saying the same old things mm. that will only take you so far. That's why I think having someone like, you know, Femi or Will or Lara or you know Richard, Amanda, and I on a FFS, 
the more we're able to get out there, the more we're able to help other young people to get on those platforms to make those cases, I think the more persuasive it will be than, you know, if Lord Mandelson goes on again and, and you know, makes the Remain case. That will convince some people, it will put off a lot of others. Yeah, yeah it's the, we call it the Tony Blair problem here on the, yeah, on exactly, the podcast. Yeah, exactly, um, and, and as regards the mechanics of a people's vote, um, there seem to be lots of options. There's, I suppose, the Justin Greening formula where it's the negotiated deal, remain or no deal. There's there's other versions of that. There's uh, the idea proposed by, by David Allen Green that actually there isn't the time, that this is kind of like illusory. It's just there's no way that it can happen. Um, what do you think is the kind of the best formula for... I mean, for how to sort of phrase it and also the most likely way to get to the people's vote. Yeah, so I think I saw something from Barnier maybe in the last two days saying that if there was going to be an extension to Article 50, it would be for something like a another referendum. Um, for me, and I think for us as FFS, we're now convinced in just getting people into the space of thinking that it should happen as opposed to the technicalities of then what is on that yeah, ballot. Right. My personal view is that... Um, you know, no deal is so disastrous that, and in order for it to be a kind of simpler process, that it should be uh, between the deal that the government is somehow manages to cobble together and remaining uh, in the European Union rather than a kind of three-question uh, referendum. Um, but I think that comes next. In terms of how you get there, I think it's a mixture of uh, some things I think will inevitable is probably a strong word in this context but will happen as a result of dilemmas that can't be fixed so you know this whole idea that if we want to protect our economy then you know we have to accept control from the EU if we want to take back control then we damage our economy that dilemma is difficult to reconcile and so I think we will get to the point in November or December where you know, the Commons, you know, Parliament isn't able to take a decision on it. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, general election or referendum. I assume the Tories will want to avoid a general election at all costs based on what happened uh, last year. So it's, but at that point, we need to have created such a cacophony of noise and support of a people's vote with young people being at the forefront of that, that then it's almost a, an easy option for MPs to say, well, look, the, the public are demanding this. Yes. We can't make yes. a decision. This is what we should do. Uh, and finally, I mean, if it, if it does happen, which obviously we here know that, that it won't, <laughs> but if it did happen, Brexit... Because um, we yeah. were <laughs> devastated pessimists. Isn't <laughs> well, this is... No, because we're, because we're not. We're gung-ho optimists. Okay, okay. Um, you know, I think this experience of, of, of sort of devastated pessimism, uh, you know, which is this is not the only cause of it. I see a, a great deal of kind of uh, a sort of great deal of bleakness from a lot of young people. Well, not just not just young people, but definitely young people. Um, do you feel that something good, more positive is going to have to you have to come out of this, that if there is a sense of um, if Brexit does happen, and if there is a sense of defeat, do you think that the the next challenge would be to try and to take all of this kind of, you know, energy and, and a, a poli very politicised generation and find somewhere for that to go that isn't just like, fuck politics, everything is terrible? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for fuck politics, everything is terrible not to be the order of the day if we do leave and if it is a no deal but ultimately you know if we have left and I think it's 
and I, I say this as a Labour man, incumbent on uh, young people and the left to ensure that we don't end up as a, you know, bargain bin basement uh, country where, you know, tax deregulated tax haven. No, I think it's then up to young people and society as a whole to say, actually, that's not what we're about. We believe in social justice and mm. you know, all well, of those but things. But that's the folly of Lexit, isn't it? That, that you, it had this notion that you create this socialist utopia by leaving the evil neoliberal EU, mm. but actually it handed control to the right, not just the right, the most extreme elements 100%. of the right. There, isn't, there is nothing socialist in my mind about uh, leaving the EU at all, Brexit at all. I think it will just hit the poorest and of the most marginalised the hardest. Um, but I think there's a lot of there's a lot more that we can do to stop us from getting to that point. I, I still feel uh, optimistic. I'm still devastated at what happened, but optimistic. <laughs> you're, you're devastated optimist. <laughs> I'm a devastated optimist that, um, yeah, we can still shift things. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Jason. Right, the end of the show is bearing down on us like a tailback of lorries on the M26, which means it's time for the Brexit time capsule, where we put the things that we're going to miss if we leave the EU, and also things we might need if we're out on our own. It's just like that sarcophagus they found in Egypt, except more frightening. Jason, you're the guest, you get to choose. What's going in the time capsule this week? Well, given that food rationing is a thing, and students love pasta... Just put as much pasta awesome. <laughs> there, as you can, please. Good call. Good choice. You can't go wrong with pasta. You can't a bit go of wrong pesto, pasta. maybe. Yeah, yeah, a bit of cheese. <laughs> I think that's a bit homophobic. Filling the capsule with carbs. <laughs> <laughs> now, a special message to long-term listeners: We need your EU language clips. If you're fluent in one of the languages from the community, then send us a short sound clip, and we'll use it on the show. Email it to info at romaniacs.com and we'll use the best ones. Here's some Portuguese. It's Brazilian Portuguese, but why not? From Beth McLaughlin. Voltando para sair da Europa, você se coloca no mal de palácio, cara. And that's the end of this week's show. Here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and the traditional roll call of our treacherous Patreon backers. Hello and thanks from me to Claire Albert, Mark Northfield, Andrew Bernstein, Mad Cyclist and Auckland, the whole city of Auckland apparently. And a very warm thanks from me to Sophie Hanscom, Tony Shaw, Miranda Tuxworth, Ian Miles and James Patterson. And thank you from me to Ben Hughes, Marco Marambe, Bill Gilmore, Giles Brown and Grant Meadows. We'll see you next week. Romaniacs is presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Alex Andreo. Studio production was by Sophie Black and the producer was me, Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.